Um, Ingo, you've got a couple of questions too. Please go ahead. Yeah. Hello, Tom. Um, I have read that some people who have experienced an emotional stressful situation can develop physical symptoms like chronic muscle tension. Um, then maybe a year later, this person gets a massage where this muscle tension gets released and this person then also get an emotional reaction and these old emotions get expressed um, which causes the tension in the body. Um, have you heard about it? Do you know how this works? Can emotions uh, somehow stored in the virtual body? Yes, they're stored in the sense that if you have stress, you know, just say stress, let that be a kind of a catch-all. If you have stress, that stress will manifest as tight muscles in the body, no matter what the stress is. could be emotional stress or some other sort of stress. And, you know, this is one of the ways that we make ourselves ill. It's all the stress we have and the, and the uh, negative feelings we have tend to affect our body. But when that gets released, it doesn't necessarily let may bring that old emotion back up to the surface. Okay. When that gets released, if there's a if there's a one to one correlation, which often there's not, because you may you may have a hundred different sources of stress and they all put tension, say, in the muscles back of your neck and uh, in your shoulders, you know, and down your back. So you have all of these real tight muscles from, you know, the shoulders down. But that's not just because of one thing. That's because of life. You know, hundreds of things have been storing stress back there. So as those get worked out, you're not going to have a single, oh, you know, this I'm reliving this moment. You know, it's not going to be like that. It's just going to be letting go of stress, and you should feel more relaxed and 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 lighter without it. If you did have something, some particular thing that was stored in just some particular part rather than many things stored there, then it's possible that as you release that, your mind might come back to that issue. But in releasing, it should also be releasing that issue. In other words, if there was one one thing and that was a knot in your lower back or something and it was because of this... Um, you know, one, say with one individual, somebody you, you always con conflict with, then maybe when you get that massage, you may have a, that person may come to your mind. You may think of that person, but it shouldn't be to re, you know, to regain the stress. It's not like, you know, it's not like there's a conservation of misery here to where you can store it in your body and then when it comes out of your body it's back in your mind and then you can store it back in your body and you're kind of stuck in this cycle of can't get rid of it. It shouldn't be like that at all. When that massage frees it up, you ought to be done with it. Now you can go have another fight with that person and store some more back in there, but as you let go of it, at least it's letting go of that physical manifestation of it. And that's good. That's helpful to do that. So it's the emotional reaction that you may get to releasing a, a physical stress ought to be a helpful one, not one that just re-initiates the original feeling. 
So no, I don't, I wouldn't agree with it that it, that it works that way. I suspect it could possibly work that way in some people's cases because they're so, um, can we say, uh, obsessed with a particular issue. And, you know, that obsession may, may connect those two like that. But in general, I don't think that's how it works. I think that would be only some individuals, not, not in general. In general, when you work out those knots, that helps you let go of the manifestation of that problem. Now you may put some, you know, if, you, if the problem's still there, you may put that stress back in your body again. But if that problem's not there, you may not. You just may be over it. So I don't think there's this conservation of misery sort of thing. You either get the stress in your in your mind and you're you're dealing with it, or you get it in your body. And when you get rid of one, you get the other one. It's not passing passing things off. The stress in your mind isn't alleviated because of you passing it to your body. You still have it in your mind. All you're doing is making the body. Uh, um, it's not like you're taking it from your mind and storing it in your body. It's still there in your mind. Your body is just, you know, I often say the mind leads, the body follows. Your body will adapt itself to your consciousness. So if in your consciousness you have a lot of stress, your body will start to show signs of that stress in the physical system. It tends, the the, the avatar tends to uh, take on the what the attitudes of the mind it just takes them on in a different way it may be a knot in your neck or something but that's because you've got a knot in your consciousness someplace where you're dealing with something you're not dealing with very well so that knot in your consciousness is mirrored into your avatar as a knot in the neck it's that sort of thing so you get rid of the knot in the neck but you don't get rid of the knot in the consciousness then you'll probably just put it back but if you get rid of the knot in the consciousness, then the knot in the neck will just disappear. So it could work either way. One's just a manifestation. The one in the avatar is a manifestation of what's in your consciousness. So the only way to get rid of that is really to get rid of the problem in your consciousness. Then you won't have that knot in your neck. Um, that's funny. I actually have something on my neck. It's funny that you talk about it. <laughs> it just seemed the right thing to say. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, I have a second question. It's about daydreams. Um, and I was wondering what is the difference between uh, daydreaming and an OBE? Um, Sometimes I have day daydreams where I need a few seconds to orient myself when I come back, uh, so to speak, and don't know how much time has passed or if I miss getting out of the bus. And I was wondering if these uh, daydreaming states can be helpful to have an OBE. Yes, there's uh, there's a very strong connection between daydreaming and OBE. Um The biggest difference is the attitude you bring to it. That's the biggest difference. It's sort of like the difference between OBE and lucid dreams. The biggest difference is the attitude you bring to it. Um, what's the what's the difference between OBE and remote viewing? 
You know, you can go OBE and then go someplace and view it and see what it is, and then you bring information back. Well, is that remote viewing? Is that OBE? Well, it just depends on the on the attitude and the and the process you go through. There, all these things are very similar. Okay, what you're doing in a daydream is the same things that you would do, say, to have an OBE. In a daydream, you let go of all your sense perception data. You stop processing it. Yes, you still know that you're, you know, you're there. You're sitting in a chair. You still can hear the traffic in the street, but you stop processing it. You no longer, you know, you let your awareness drift away from it. Maybe another way to say it. So when you do that, that defines basically this point consciousness where you are no longer attached to your sense data, no longer processing sense data. And then you're taking your mind and you're going off into some other adventure, some other interaction. Now, one of the differences is that if you are daydreaming, but you never get out of your intellect, if your intellect is in charge and you're having a daydream and you are orchestrating every piece of it, okay, it's all coming out of your intellect, then that's not at all like an OB. But if you have this daydream, and it kind of takes on a life of its own. You know, things happen, and uh, not necessarily things you expected to happen. Uh, you know, situations develop, and things happen, and it, it goes from this to that, and it has a life of its own. Well, that means there's a data stream coming to you that's defining that. Now, you may have started out by, by uh, your imagination creating that data stream, and maybe now you're... you're imagination is creating half of the data stream, but not necessarily all of it because things are coming into it that aren't things that you necessarily would have made up. See what I mean? If it's a daydream that takes on its own characteristics, its own life where things happen that surprise you when they happen, somebody says something or does something or you get this result and that's kind of, Oh, okay. Now I'm going to have to do something else. Well, that's very similar to an OBE. An OBE is basically where you let go of your sense data, stop operating on it, and start getting a data stream from the larger consciousness system. It's it's a single-player game, if you like it. Here, in this physical reality, it's a multiplayer game. Us and a lot of other people interacting with each other. When you do an OBE, you just let go of this data stream, that's the multiplayer game, and start getting a data stream that's a single player game some adventure things you do things happen but things that happen aren't things that you planned or necessarily would have come up with it's just stuff that happens so that lets you know that it's coming from outside of you if it's all just under the control of your intellect then it's not coming from outside of you if all of the things are just kind of obvious things that you might have thought of or might have done or might have questioned or so on. It, it, uh, it's, it, uh, it's just you going through various possibilities in your own mind about the way something might play out. Then that's not so much like an OBE. But if you're out actually having an interaction, an, an adventure, you interact with other people or things, and those interactions seem to be, uh, what, powered on their own it's not you doing it, then it's very much the same as an OBE. 
So it can be, just depends on the nature of the daydream. And yes, it's a good technique to, to get in, to get into an ubi. A good technique is to start with a daydream. Start with your imagination. And in, when you, when your imagination gets to a point where there's uncertainty in what might happen next, that's a jumping off point into the ubi. See, now what I mean by that, let's say in your imagination, you are, uh, you know, walking through an old building and a magic old building at that, you know, you can imagine all sorts of things. Magic works fine in your imagination. And now you get to this door and that door is a portal into some other reality in your imagination. So now you walk up to that door and you open it and jump through. Okay. Now. What happens next? You see, if you don't, if you haven't, you know, if you haven't made up the story, you know, what happens next is I, you know, I fly and do this and do that. If you really haven't made up anything of what happens next, when you jump through that portal, you allow the system to start feeding you data. You see, now that's the trick to switch you from the data stream in your imagination to a data stream from the LCS. Suddenly, you're getting this data, and it could be partly you, partly the LCS at first, and then fully the LCS once you get into whatever that adventure is on the other side of the portal. So portals and things, yes, they're imaginary things, but what they do is they help us lead ourselves to the point where we're open to a different data stream. You see, it just opens us to the possibility of a different data stream. And then we grab that data stream and whatever happens is what happens after that. And that's really no, you know, that is an OBE because you're now out having experience someplace else and it's not here. That's what OBE means. You know, it's, it's, you're no longer in the physical multiplayer game. You're in some other virtual reality. All the realities are virtual realities. If you can have an experience in a reality, it's a virtual reality. All realities that are experiential are virtual realities. So it's just a matter of getting a different data stream. And one good way to do it is to just open yourself to a, to a possibility of something unique, something that you don't have any story built for, and then let that story come as it comes. And that gives the LCS a chance to feed you Data. Now, why would the LCS decide to feed you a, a single player game? Almost always these OBEs are something that you can learn from. They're lessons. You make choices in them. You're not just a voyeur. Very, very seldom is your OBE just looking at things. Mostly it provides you with choices. You have to decide what to do. And those choices are just as valid in your learning. And in your growing as any choice in any reality. So the system now takes an advantage of, of uh, giving you a data stream that helps you learn something significant, helps you learn something maybe about reality or about out of body experiences or about something else. So yes, those two are very much connected. It was a very good question. And it's one that, uh, you know, I try and when I, talk to people about out of body, I tell them, don't be afraid to use your imagination. It's a good tool, 
But many people say, oh, imagination. But if, if I'm using my imagination, then it's not really an out-of-body. It's just me making it all up. Well, there is no way for you to really know the difference. So don't try to judge it. Just experience it. Just go with the experience. Now, after you've experienced it dozens of times, now you can start to judge, get your intellect comes back into it and says, was there anything that happened that I learned something from? Was there any value in it? Was there anything there that is significant to me and my growth and my understanding? And if the answer is yes, well, then keep doing it. It's valuable to you. If the answer is no, well, let it go. Try something else, you know, instead of a door, make the portal, uh, you know, a little round, uh, you know, circle of light or something and try it a different, different time. Go, you know, do, do something else. So that's the way you judge it. If you judge it immediately upon having it, if the first instant, you know, you, okay, you open the door and now you are whatever, standing on a grassy field someplace and you don't know where it is. If the first thought, of yours is, what is this? Am I just making this up or is this an out of body? Well, that's your intellect jumping in, trying to judge when it doesn't have enough information. It can't judge. That's the intellect guessing. And it'll just take you right out of the, you know, take you right out of that situation and you'll never get anywhere. You just have to go with it and go with it to the point that you can determine. So the intellect has 20 such journeys and now it can it can ask the question, well, did I learn any from anything from that? Was it useful? Is it valuable? And if the answer is yes, keep doing it. If the answer is no, then leave it alone. So it's, it's that. The, the question isn't, is it real? People get wound up around the question, is it real? That's a very bad question. Information is real. There's nothing more real than information. Getting an information, interpreting it, that's what our reality is. So the fact that it, that information comes from your own consciousness, it's still real. You're getting information. It's just what is the source is more of the question. What is the source? Not is it real. Okay, well, eventually you will be able to tell whether or not the source is likely to be you. You will never know 100%. You can never know with, you know, with no uncertainty. But you will get, you'll have a lot of clues. You'll get a lot of things that'll happen to you that, that are just not inside you to come up with them, you know, and you'll be aware of that, you know, you'll, you'll maybe, uh, have some thing where you, you do a remote viewing or you talk to somebody who you know who's dead or something, and they tell you things that you can come back here and check, things that you didn't know, you know, things that there were no way for you to know, and you can come back here and check them, and, yeah, there they are. Well, then that gives you a little bit of documentation that you have done something, gotten information that wasn't in your head to begin with. And if you can get that kind of verification, you know, 100 times, then you start getting confidence that what you're doing is really connected someplace else. And that's what I mean with, with experience. You'll have these, these evidential moments. Those evidential moments will eventually help you build confidence. And again, the question isn't, is it real? The question is, is it useful? But with experience, you'll be able to tell 
to a large degree, again, not with total certainty, but to a large degree, where it's coming from. Is it coming? There's only three possibilities. Coming from yourself, it's coming from the LCS, or it's coming from some other IUOC. And based on the nature of the information you get, it's not that hard to determine which of those is most likely. See, out of body is not nearly as hard as you thought. You don't have to climb up a rope or do anything, uh, you know, cool about getting out of your body because you were never in your body in the first place. It's all about your awareness, your consciousness. And it's just a matter of shifting data streams, not a matter of getting some, you know, etheric, subtle, protoplasmic body to ooze out of the top of your head and go somewhere. All that is just nonsense. It's just about a Attaching your awareness to a different data stream and starting with uh, a daydream is a good way of starting as any. And actually, it's a very good way of starting. Does that help? Yes, <laughs> that helps. Thank you. Um, I asking me that question because I'm sitting was sitting in a train um, watching um, out of the window and. Then the daydreaming, daydreaming starts, and after it ends, I need really to think how much time has happened. I thought it may be five minutes or ten minutes, but I, it only were a few seconds. And then I'm asking myself, who was that something like an OBE? And that's yes. why I'm asking that question. Yeah, it's very much like an OBE. Cool. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Ingo. I'm going to go on to a couple of questions that we didn't get to ask at the last couple of fireside chats. Question from Voyager on high suicide rate of older people in Korea. I read that the suicide rate has become quite high in South Korea for older people simply because they don't have sufficient income to continue paying their bills. Many are in poor health and do not have relatives they can move in with. Obviously, the country needs to develop a better social safety net. But what would you say to these folks who are faced with a difficult choice between either living on the streets or killing themselves? They do not have nearly enough shelters for all the homeless people, perhaps like other places in the world. When is it time to trade in the old junker for a shiny new model? If you don't have the funds to keep a roof over your head, is there any value in old, sick people battling to survive in the streets, considering all the suffering that that entails? Well, you know, that question, and the answer to that question depends on the individual. There may be some older people who are homeless, but who are at the same time learning a great deal. They're making relationships, they're finding community, Within that homelessness, they are getting by somehow, they're persevering, and if that's a growing situation to them, if it's something that they are learning, even if it's difficult, it may be very difficult, but if they're learning, then sure, they should keep, they should keep chugging along. Maybe they're able to help others. Maybe they are able to, you know, help some of the new people that come into that situation, figure out, you know, where, where do you go, you know, to get fed? Where do you go to find housing? Uh, what lines do you stand in? What what the services do you apply for? 
So they may find a niche there that is makes them useful and helpful and gives them satisfaction. If that's the case, or maybe they're just hanging out with each other. They just have friends there that they enjoy being with. So if that's the case, then yes, they should continue on. If, on the other hand, they don't have any of that, they're just hopeless. Uh, they don't have anything going on for them, and maybe that's because they've just kind of sunk into the depths of self-pity. Oh, well, it's me. And they can't see anything other than, than negativity in any direction. There's nothing going for them. Everything's negative. Nothing is positive. And in that case, you know, then not ending it may not be a bad decision. That may be if they're dead-ended. Now, if they're just dead-ended temporarily until they get their feet back under them or they find some situation or they make some friends or whatever, then, you know, then the suicide would be a really bad idea, you see. A lot of that is, you know, people who are depressed, people who feel really uh, dead-ended, there's no way to go, you know, there's no way to, to, to climb. They're just stuck at the bottom where they are. Some of that isn't because they're really stuck at the bottom. Some of it's just culture shock. They've never been there before. They've never been poor before. They've never been on the street before. And a lot of it is culture shock, and it's not that they have no choices. is that they can't see the choices that they have. In that case, it would be better if they could find some of those choices that they have and continue on with their growth. But if they can't find any of those and they're not making any progress toward finding any of those, then if they feel that uh, you know they're stuck, then that would be a, an option to exit so they could get on with something more productive. Now, part of this in Korea is because of the changing in their culture. You know, we we have, you know, you often hear me say that the Western culture is not Western anymore. It's taking over the world. It's everywhere, a materialist culture. In the Korean culture, of old, and this doesn't go back that, you know, you don't have to go that far back to be there, maybe, uh, you know, a generation or two. It was the culture specified who took care of the older people. You know, if you were the eldest son in a family, then the eldest son had the responsibility of taking care of the parents. That was just his job because he was the eldest son, and that was part of that culture. So the parents, if they had any sons at least, the eldest one was obligated to take care of them. And that was a part of the the culture. There's a lot of Asian cultures are like that. You know, who takes care of the parents and and so on are not are not kind of left up to the family. That's a part of the cultural uh you know things things you do and things you don't do. It's responsibilities of of you to do that. And I think that has broken down to some degree. It's not like that anymore. With the internet, you know, the cultures, we're coming up to world culture sort of thing. And our own personal cultures don't don't mesh with what we see on the internet or what we want to do or with our egos. And it's easy to kind of cut them loose and say, well, mom and dad, you're on your own. I know I'm the oldest son, but, hey, I just got a job order, a good really job offer in another part of the world and see you around. Good luck. 
So we have that going on that didn't happen two or three generations ago. Job offer or not, dutiful son would come and fulfill his obligation to parents and not so much anymore. So cultures have been kind of breaking down and homogenizing into a, into something that uh, is a little hard in transition. So I suspect the Korean government, as they see this problem developing, will start building more shelters, more places for these people to go, uh, more uh, uh, things for them to do, activities for them to take place in, things, jobs that they can do, you know, things where they can have their experience and their knowledge can be part of a process rather than than uh, the culture, you know, dumps them out at a particular age because that's when they're supposed to retire. You know, there may be other things they can do. They may teach in elementary schools. You know, there's a lot of things that they might do. That just has to be organized. It's not a part of their culture now, but maybe it could be after this transition has had some time to sort itself out. So I'd say this is temporary. It's just a cultural upheaval as culture changes and people try to adapt to it. Um, you know, there's there's no point in going on just to go on if you're not learning anything. The sad part is you may have things that you could learn, but you're not aware of it. So you don't learn. You just focus on the negative. And that's sad when people do that because there may be lots of things they could do that they don't do because they just don't know that that choice is there. And then for that person to commit suicide because they're not aware of the choices that they have, that's pretty sad. And hopefully you would have some social workers and other people trying to work with them and help them see those kinds of choices. Um, but if you are at a dead end or if you are ill and in pain and your choice is to stay completely drugged up, you know, and uh, that's the only way you can survive, but that leaves you completely blotto, you know, so you can be a live vegetable or you can die, then, of course, dying is probably the better idea. Move on. You know, it's not, uh, there's no, you know, there's no punishment for committing suicide. The only punishment is whether or not you leave opportunities that you could have had unexplored opportunities for learning that you leave them unexplored another question from the MBT forum is from fun IUOC on the representation of our quality of consciousness I am curious as to how our quality of consciousness is represented data wise in our IUOC I understand that we generally do not retain intellectual knowledge between experience packets. So that would seem to rule out remembering specific algorithms for making decisions. How then is the quality of our consciousness represented so that there is a continuity and growth between lifetimes without us recalling specific memories and algorithms? It's an interesting question. Well... I think in a way we're digging a little deep into the metaphors beyond where the metaphors are actually intended to work when we ask a question like that. Um, that is, you know, 
IUOCs, um, Individual Unit of Consciousness, for people that aren't familiar with that acronym, Larger Consciousness System, Free Will Awareness Units, all of these things are metaphors trying to describe a function of consciousness. The MBT model, okay, is a, is a, is a, uh, is a model. It's not, you know, it's, it, don't look at it as fact. That's not, uh, I'm not getting this, I'm not saying this very well. You have to look at, at a model as a model. It's a, it's a structure that tries to explain experience. And that's what it is. And in order to be able to talk about the various functions of consciousness, I have come up with this model that has to do with a larger conscious system and individuated units of consciousness and so on. And those metaphors, you know, stand for functions, for kind of basic functions within the consciousness. Now, to get down to the very details of what's inside that IUOC, you know, what's the... What does the data structure look like in there, you know, and what's it programmed in and how's it programmed and, you know, where does the free will come from in this program structure? And, you know, we can get to that and there's, there's answers for that, but they're all just general kind of answers. You know, it's, it's digging deeper into the metaphor than what the metaphor really is there for. So I would say, that just leave it at the point where the IUOC has memory. It also has quality. It also has, you know, it's like it's got its intellectual part and it's got its being level part. Just like when we express that with our avatar. Okay, we have our intellectual part that's all about the analysis. It's all about the memory and taking those memories and coming to conclusions based on them. That's the judging, assessing analyzing part of the intellect and then there is the part that just is that's at the being level it's just the way you are it doesn't analyze it doesn't judge it just is what it is that's at the being level okay now we have those and let's say consciousness just has that too that's our consciousness when we're here well that's the way the ioc is made Trying to break that down into, into coding and, and, uh, uh, more specifics than that is probably not helpful. So if consciousness has those two components, it has the intuitive component and it has the intellectual component. And that's the nature of consciousness. Well, you're going to take that being level component, which represents just who you are at the core. That's the being level. That's what you're going to keep. That's what goes on into the next free will awareness unit. That's what goes on into the next avatar. You take along that being level information, and what you leave behind is that intellectual information, which includes all the specific memory. Okay? So I just break it down like that and not try to get to any more detail than that. I think then we'd be pushing the metaphors beyond the point where metaphors really go. So all the rest of that is is um, just whatever the larger consciousness, however the larger consciousness system models those things. But we as consciousness also have two parts. One's intellectual. Intellectual has to do with what's in your aware mind. Okay, that's your 
what you remember and all the things you don't remember and all the feelings and all the rest of that stuff lives at the being level. It's just who and what you are. That represents the core of you. Okay, so that core of you is what gets passed on to the free will awareness unit into the next lifetime. And that intellectual part is what is not passed on. So I just make it like that and not try to dig any deeper than that. Thank you, Tom. Uh, the next question from MBT Forum user Gray comes um, in April. I have a reoccurring experience where a formless thing is calling out to me with a sound that brings tears to my eyes just to recall it. The more I try to overcome it, the more chaos and horrors occur around me. As this is a reoccurring event, I have become familiar with the process. I cannot speak of the horrors I'm shown, but each time I would rather choose to face them than answer the call. It's unbearable. If I wake up, I get dragged back against my will. Time slows and I can't escape. The worst of it happened two nights ago. I came back and I had completely missed work. Here's my question. In your experience and understanding of reality, what do you think is happening? Can fear tests really become this extreme? If so, how do I face something that torments my very being so deeply and yet is formless? Yeah, I'm not really sure that I have, from his description, and I really understand his experience. It seems like he has a... Uh, a dream or, or an experience and it is a negative experience it sounds like uh, but Harry, then he, he said this, oh, sorry, formless thing, this formless thing is calling out to me with a sound that brings tears to my eyes okay now uh, formless thing calls out now how does that then get translated into horrible things that happen what's the, the connection the, there the more he tries to overcome it the more chaos and horrors occur around me Okay. Now, uh, wait a minute. He's familiar with this process. Okay, so he has a thing that calls to him, and he he wants to to withstand it or somehow not give in to this thing, and he, then he, he gets would rather, horrible. Yeah, he would rather choose to face them rather than answer the call. So he's this thing is calling out. He's not answering. He would rather face this chaos that goes around him and he seems to be dragged back into this against his will yeah. can't yeah. escape it does sound a little um, forceful for a fear test I would agree with that but I would suggest that he try just you know answering the call as he calls it now I don't know exactly what that means to him you know he doesn't explain that very well but see what happens. You know, he said he'd rather experience all the horrible stuff than do that. Well, then yes. do that and see what happens. Nothing's really going to hurt you. This is all going on in mental space. This is all uh, information being sent to you that you are uh, that you are interpreting. You see, it's nothing's going to bite you and hurt you. The most dangerous thing that you've got is your own fear. That's the thing. That's the thing that is. It can hurt you. It's not something outside of you. It's your own fears what hurts you. So I would I would think that 
because there's so many unknowns. If I knew more, I could maybe give him more specific advice. But with that kind of general description, I would say perhaps he should just go to that thing that's calling to him, answer the call, see what it's all about. And if it turns out badly, well, it doesn't sound like it could be much worse than the other stuff he's getting. That seems to be stuff that's that's really a problem too. So try it and try it without fear. Just try it with the idea I'm going to see what it is. I'm going to uh, explore it. And the worst thing that can happen is I'll wake up here and, you know, go on with my life. It's just data. It's just information. It's an experience. So... Okay. Uh, that would um, be that would be the suggestion. If it is a fear test, then that would be the solution, not to do the other stuff, but to go see what that that call is all about. And it may turn to, out to be nothing at all. It was just whether or not he could get the courage to do it. Now, if it's something else, I can't tell that because I don't have enough of his description and feeling and so on. And I understand you know it's hard to write like ten pages to. You know, send in a question. But uh, in any case, so that would be my first guess would be just go do it. See what happens. It's not going to hurt you. Your own The only thing can hurt you is your own fear. So go to it with courage. I'm just going to see what goes on here. I'm going to experience it. Worst thing that can happen is I'll wake up in my bed in a cold sweat and I'll, you know, Get up and step for a little bit, or I'll write it all down. I'll describe it in my notes. It's, you know, the imagined horrors are generally much, much worse than the actual facts that you run into Mm. in this case. It seems whatever the sound is, is more frightful to him than going through this whole process. Right, and that's why I, I say that it's probably the choice to go with the sound, because how frightful can sound be? You know, I think what's happening is the system is impressing upon him this sense of terror at the sound, and seeing how he deals with that. Right. Um, don't unless uh, it's an issue he's trying to avoid that is familiar to him, but we cannot ascertain that. No, but I also would also tell mm-hmm. him. If you can't bring your, if you can't get the courage to face it, to go toward that sound, then maybe it's best not to do it. Because if you go with a lot of terror in your heart, then you're liable just to scare yourself more. So I'd say screw up your courage to where you can face it and then do it. And if you can't get that courage, if you can't find that courage, then just leave it alone. And uh, if you can't leave it alone because it keeps nagging at you, it keeps coming back and nagging at you, then I don't know what you're going to do at that point. It seems like you're caught between a rock and a hard place. You can't sleep and you, you know, you can't stay awake. So at that point, I guess uh, you'd have to try something beyond what I know about. You'd have to get maybe take something that would help you sleep at a deeper level. So you wouldn't have that. Uh, I don't know. But at first, I think you ought to be able to to get yourself in a in a mood and in a mindset that you're just going to find out. Nothing can hurt you. 
you'll you'll wake back up in your bed and you'll be just fine. So get your courage and go do it and see what it is. If you can't do that, then you guess you have to deal with it some other way. That's the only direct way I know to to deal with it. Other than that, I don't know what to do about it. If you if you refuse to take you know if you refuse to open door A and you always go through door B and door B is horrible, how bad could door A be? And maybe that's the thing you're supposed to explore. I would try that, but then I don't have a lot of fear around those things. If he does have a lot of fear around those things, I don't want him to come back hysterical or something. So that would not be good. So you have to figure it out on your own about how much courage you have and uh, whether or not you think this is going to be something that you can, that you can uh, do without fear. All right, Tom, thank you. The next question comes from Robert A.C. from the MBT Forum. On March 2018, I sat down on my bed and asked the LCS, who are you? In English, not my first tongue, but it's the only language, language I love. Then laid down and slept. I didn't expect any answer. I dreamt that night of a perfect, dark, silent void where I saw black letters on white small pieces of plastics, exactly like the departures and arrival boards in train stations. The colors were reversed, falling slowly one after the other from left to right in capital letters that read, I am an entity. I woke up immediately and didn't remember anything else from that night. I was shocked because the word entity wasn't in my vocabulary back then. (laughs) Later I asked other questions but never had an answer. Yes, well, things like that happen. You know, the, uh, you ask a question, often you'll get an answer. And what you do with that answer will often determine what, whether you get more questions answered. If you just take that answer and go, wow, okay, now what? And don't really pursue it, then maybe nothing else will happen. Um, but evidently that question was just asked at the right level. You know, it probably wasn't from his intellect. It probably was from the being level. He had probably dropped into that zone where he was mostly being level. And he asked that question. And when you're in the right place, then you get an answer. And the fact that he got it like that, you know, the system gives you information in a way that you can best understand it. So I would say he should continue with that, try to get back in that spot where he was when he asked that question, get back in that same mindset, not work it from his intellect, but get back at that, that intuitive level where he asked the first question and start asking more questions till he builds up a relationship with the system. All right. Thank you. Next question comes from also Robert AC. Uh, questions for Tom on sugar, suffering and the usefulness of illness. You said that illness can be useful and needed for us to evolve. And you said that sugar disturbs our consciousness and subsequently jeopardizes our revolution. If sugar has such a negative effect on consciousness, imagine how much physical suffering can be negative for it. It's like advocating drinking a soft drink constantly. Try to think when you have a headache, how can that be helpful for evolution? I fail to see the benefit of that. 
I'm not sure where he's going there, but... <laughs> I didn't um, really hear a question yet. Yeah. Also, you said that suffering brings benefits to the members of the family who are taking care of the sick person because they learn compassion, for example. Well, this is going into another question. So okay. uh, we're trying to figure out what his question on sugar is. Negative effect on consciousness. Imagine how much physical suffering can be negative for it. Well, let us talk a little bit about this in general, and maybe uh, I'm not sure just what his question is, but okay. his next question goes into suffering. And yes, illness can be a learning experience. Okay, Illness forces you to make choices that you wouldn't have to make otherwise. Learning is about making choices. And illness often puts you into what... Uh, well, it certainly puts you into a different set of choices. Um, let's say you're ill, and because you're ill, you have to be pushed around in a wheelchair. That puts you in a completely different set of choices than when you were able to walk and do things for yourself, a different attitudes. Do you, does it make you angry that you're in the wheelchair? You know, do you resent the fact that, you know, why me in this wheelchair? That sort of thing. Well, those would all be things that were de-evolving, not evolving. Do you, can you accept do you, uh, do you, uh, uh, actually, can you learn from the changes in your dependency? When you're ill, often you're a lot more dependent on other people to help you. You're dependent on doctors and nurses, but also on family and relatives to help you get by when you're, when you're ill. Uh, does that help you see the value in these people? There's a lot of things you can get just because it gives you a different set of choices bumps you out of the rut you were in before you were ill where all these you had the same maybe you know the same sets of choices kept coming up over and over again and gives you now a new set new questions give you new opportunity new choices give you new opportunity for growth so also it's you can learn from it because many illnesses are a result of attitudes and if you have a very negative attitude, then you're liable to have physical ailments that go along with that. Physical ailments that are there because of your negative attitude. Again, the mind follows the body. I mean, the mind leads, the body follows. So that's the connection. Now, not everybody learns things from, from illness. Some people get ill and they just get you know, cranky and whatever, and, and they don't learn much from it. It's just opportunity. And if you are somebody that has to take care of an ill person, you know, you may learn something from it. You may learn about giving. You may learn about, uh, you know, service, uh, or you may not. You may just learn about resentment and about, uh, you know, why now you're spending your time taking care of this person instead of out partying, and, you know, and you resent it. So, they're just opportunities, you know, choices. You can learn from things or not learn from things, but at least when you get a new set of choices, you have opportunity to learn something new. If you just keep going and making the same choices over and over again in a life that's become very repetitious, then your learning is slow. So something new pops into your life, and that gives you new choices. And when it does, there's opportunities for growth. 
So it's not like everybody should go get ill because there's such wonderful opportunities, you know, to grow from being sick. It's not like that at all. It's that if you are sick, you should always look at why. Where did this illness come from? Why do I have this? And if you find it's because of your your past choices, your lifestyle choices, the choices of what you eat, the choices of of uh, how negative or positive you are, then you can maybe change those choices, you see. So it's just getting ill or getting a headache isn't like that's, uh, you know, a, a quick road to uh, growing up. It's just another set of choices, new choices. That's the that's kind of the connection there. And as you take care of people that have illnesses, that's a new set of choices. Now you have responsibility you didn't have before. It's like having a baby. You know, when a couple has a baby, oh, they get a whole new set of choices to deal with. Not at all like the choices they used to have. You know, it's just a totally different world they live in as far as the choices that they have to make. So whenever your life changes, particularly in a substantial way, you end up with new opportunities for growing up, new perspectives, new attitudes. So illness can be a learning experience, but it doesn't mean it has to be a learning experience. You can get ill or you can have a child and remain just as self-centered and negative as you always were. That's unfortunate, but you you nothing makes you grow up. You have to grab that opportunity and make make the right choices. So well, did I answer you, both both questions? Well, I think you answered most of it. And Robert, if we haven't answered your question, if I haven't done justice to reading it, um, please resubmit it, reformulate it, resubmit it, and we'll give it another go. Um, Robert does also have another question. Um, why shouldn't we fear poverty and illness and death when the LCS itself wants to evolve because it fears its own de-evolution and death? Well, I would not say it fears its de-evolution and death. I think that would be uh, that would be a wrong statement. Now, you know, it's just this this uh, it's this thing that people get confused with fear and being stupid. It's like, well, jump off this cliff, and if you don't jump, you know, if you're fearless, why don't you jump off the cliff? And you can say, well, just because I'm fearless, I'm not stupid. I don't want to jump off the cliff because that's a dumb thing to do. Well, the larger conscious system is like that too. Don't confuse the idea that that being fearless makes you stupid or compare the two. It's not that that uh, the larger conscious system fears its dissolution and death. It's that it's smart enough and intelligent enough and knowledgeable enough to not want to go there, so it works on systems that evolve rather than systems that de-evolve. It's just a an intelligent choice, just like not jumping off the cliff is an intelligent choice. Because you make because you make an intelligent choice not to run through the woods when the grizzly bears are mating, you know that doesn't mean that you're afraid of grizzly bears. It means that you have a brain and you realize that there's no sense putting yourself at risk when risk isn't required. So I think that's the thing. I would not jump to the conclusion that the system has fear of dissolution. I would say that it's aware of that as a possibility, 
It's intelligent and it makes good choices. That's different than being fearful. 